Hello, I am Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Combinations and Permutations, episode 12. On a very special episode this week, Combinations and Permutations goes on the road where I speak with my father about such things as race relations, palindromes, and shwimp. Here it goes. Hello and welcome to Combinations and Permutations, the podcast that usually comes to you from the mailroom of CDC Building 7 at UNLV. But today it's not. Today it's coming from the living room of my family home up in Niagara, Wisconsin. As I mentioned last week, it is currently our spring break. And so I am here in the living room with my father who introduced me to mathematics as well as being a math teacher of his own accord. And I will be referring to him as Fafa throughout the episode, even though his real name is Danny Hansen. Introduce yes. yourself. Well, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm Sam's father, and the name Fafa came when, when Sam was uh, was quite young. I, I, I don't know why he said it. He just called me Fafa, and he's never never called me dad or father, except when sometimes he introduces himself to introduces me to someone else. Well, it is it is very hard to be like, hey, this is my Fafa. Yes, that's right. Okay, so uh, today we're hoping, well, I'm specifically hoping whether or not my father will uh, be very okay with the idea to talk about some of his experiences as a math teacher. Now, you've uh, taught in various places throughout the country. I mean, where did you end up teaching? Well, I began teaching in Plymouth, Wisconsin, so in Wisconsin for a couple of years. And then I went to California and taught in uh, Sacramento. And while I was there, I did a year of graduate work because California required five years to have a teaching certificate. And then there was uh, some lack of money because of a tax override election in California. And I went to North Carolina and taught for four years. Then kind of retired for a while. And then over the past oh, 10, 15 years, I've been enjoying substitute teaching at the local school here in Niagara. He said enjoying with such an interesting tone. Uh, I know that that specifically you've you've done I mean I've obviously I know a huge amount of stories I kind of grew up listening to you talk it's one of those problems you know when you're somebody's child you tend to know a lot of the stories that they have but when you started teaching I mean specifically because I know that you got your bachelor's degrees technically in what biology zoology right in zoology yeah and so when you went on to start teaching why was there the the decision to teach mathematics instead of teaching in the area that you ostensibly went to college for? Well, at that time, there was, I think, three different concentrations on which, which way you should teach biology. And I really was interested in the ecological approach, and most of the places where you went, well, they weren't interested in it. So the first year, I did teach biology and some mathematics, but it turned out that I just enjoyed teaching mathematics much more. So um, that's kind of what, what happened. And also, there was more demand for a for math teachers than there was for science teachers. So um, when I went to California, that's just about all that that was really available. And so I started teaching more and more. And the longer I taught mathematics, the more I liked to do it. 
why why do you enjoy teaching mathematics? I know even to this day, when you go in to do substitute teaching, sometimes you bring in... I've mentioned on the podcast before the game Hex, which I know that you still bring in, even when you're teaching a foreign language, substituting in a foreign language course, you still have them play Hex, which is a mathematical styled game. So why do you still to this day enjoy teaching mathematics? Because I know that students, my students particularly, do not seem to enjoy it. Oh, I'm surprised by that. I didn't know that. But th there's probably two ways of thinking about it. First of all, when I was teaching mathematics, if you went to math conferences at that time, back in the 60s... Uh, you got you, free bags? Because that's what they give us. You got more than free bags. You got free books. And if you would uh, sign up and say that, you were, that your um, school was interested in adapting some... Uh, looking for some new books in the courses they would send them to you for nothing. And in the process, I got quite a few textbooks in mathematics, but one of the textbooks that really made a difference for me, at the end of each one of the mathematical sections, it would have interesting things to investigate in mathematics. And that really, really made a difference for my teaching. Because I discovered there were a lot of interesting things in mathematics other than just, you know, the the normal uh, way of approaching things. So when you started teaching, you didn't realize that math was interesting. Well, no. <laughs> you, thought it was, you thought it was very dull. It's like, one plus one equals two, guys. Two plus two equals four. Well, that's true. But, you, you know, you had to have the, that basic foundation. But the thing that I found interesting, there was mathematics of soap bubbles, and there were mathematical games. That time, pretty much mathematical recreations. And then there were, you know, the mathematicians themselves were interesting. And I had never really seen any of that before. And so what happened is I decided that I would have my students write a term paper each semester in mathematics. And at that time in Sacramento, even the English teachers weren't requiring their teacher, weren't requiring their students. So no, no term papers in English. No. No, they would have, there were no major papers. They would have them do some writing, but there were no major papers. So here was Mr. Hansen requiring their, his students <laughs> to write a term paper. And, and I was very insistent on them using proper grammar and punctuation. And they could write it by hand, but I really wanted them to type. And this, see, this was before. Wow, computers. that was what, late, or mid to late 60s at that yes. point, right? And so they actually had to use a typewriter, and where if you made a mistake, your old paper was a mess. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if anyone who's listening to this, since we put this over the Internet, actually knows what a typewriter is. Okay. But it was this manual machine that you hit keys, very much looked just like our keyboards, but it, it sent this little thing, hammer up, and it stamped something on the, on the page that looked like a, lighter, or, uh, a letter. And so it was very much like Microsoft Word without all the annoying uh, functionality issues. <laughs> Well, I'm not certain you really understand how old your father is, though, because I can remember when I was in fifth grade, when you wanted to make copies of things for the class, the very first thing that I saw was called a hectograph. And a hectograph was a um, dish thing about the size, a little bit bigger than a big cake pan, and about, I don't know how deep it was, but it was really gelatin. So silly putty. There's a gigantic thing of silly putty. No, it was, well, not silly putty. It was like <laughs> gelatin, okay, that you would see in a Petri dish when they grow um, bacteria things. And what you would do is you would you would take a thing of paper and you would write on it and it would pick up blue ink because there was a you know, carbon copy behind it. And then you would take that paper and you would put it on this gelatin, press it down, and leave it on there for every four, five, six minutes. I don't remember how long anymore. And you would pull that off. 
And then you would take another sheet of paper, put it over the top, rub your hand over, pull that off, there would be copy number one. And then you put another one on, pull it off, there would be copy number two. That was, you know, that's how long your father's been around. So, so when, because, when did you, when were you finished teaching full-time? Was that the 70s? Yeah, I think so. Okay, and so when you finished teaching full time, there still weren't copy machines in schools, no, were there? No, no, Sam. The copy, <laughs> the copy machines changed all the time, and then pretty soon there were hand turning things with. Yeah, but of, I'm talking about like modern ones. Well, modern ones, but the thing that was neat about these hand turning ones, they had a uh, um, some fluid that I think kind of made you high. I was used, <laughs> I always used to joke that I like to run the things off because I would, you know, I'd be kind of dizzy when I would come out of it. <laughs> out of the duplicating room. And then eventually that turned into being electric, you know, you put something in. But you would type the copy and put it on, and you could only get about 30, 40 copies out of it. So you'd have to type another copy if you wanted more than that. So then, then it got better and better, and of course now it's just... Yeah, I mean, what did you think the first time you ran into a... Kid? I mean, since you had stopped teaching, I'm sure that, the. I mean, I know the... I seem to remember something about the first time you, st you used one that could collate and staple and being very, very shocked by its ability. I'm still shocked by it. I mean, often when I run things off, I just say, now look at this. You can put something on both sides of the paper. It's just, I mean, it's, it's absolutely, it really is. It's incredible. You know, look how, how easy it is. You just go in and if you know the right buttons to push in no time at all, you have whatever you want. And you know, it, it, it certainly a lot, it works a lot more quickly than it did years ago. Uh, when you were, when you were teaching, and so you're you have these students typing up term papers in math. What were some of the ones that people ended up handing in to you? I mean, if you remember, well, any I had of them. A, I had a list of them. Oh, of course I remember them because there were lots of things that you know that still interest me to this day. But they might be doing something on infinity, or they might be doing something on, uh, you know, the uh, what is that thing of Hanoi? You know, where you move the towers of Hanoi. Tower of Hanoi. That's still an interesting computational <laughs> problem. We talked about it in algorithms it in is. my algorithms course. One of the things to this day that I will still use when I substitute teach is the uh, the problem of the printed line, where you know you have a line that's 62 um, uh, letters long, and considering the number of letters in the alphabet and the numbers and the different things that we use in the English language, how many lines would it take to write er absolutely every possible combination there is? That's a fascinating problem. And how many is it? <laughs> we want to get into it. <laughs> oh, yes, we do. No, it's 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 one of those things where the number gets so large, and I can't remember the actual particulars, but it's, you know, it's, it's more lines than atoms in the universe many, many times over. Oh, okay. So it's a pretty it's a pretty large number, but it's fun to do. And, well... You know, when I mentioned before, when I started doing this stuff with teaching, where I had students do term papers, they could also do a term project if they want to. They could build a mathematical model. It's some kind of polyhedron model or some other thing. Okay, so so when you when you say mathematical model, because when I think of a mathematical model, I think of modeling something in an iterative sense or a, a differential equation. You're, you're actually referring to a physical thing. Absolutely. That's what, that's what it always meant to me. And or they might, um, you know, find some kind of design that was interesting, and, and they would they would build that. One time, a student built a um, three-dimensional tic-tac-toe board. Oh, nice! Where you have uh, a four by four, <clears throat> and then he 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 um, had a class in electronics, and this was in Sacramento. It took him a long time to build that. I think almost the entire year. 
but it was magnificent and then you could push the little buttons and it would light up the particular space that you would select and uh, I wonder you know, if he ended up at the homebrew computing club I don't know <laughs> another student one time well this was actually um, the, when I when I did the year of, of uh, graduate work in, in California I showed some student um, MC Escher and he built a three-dimensional model of the um, relativity thing that uh, MC Escher has. Which one's the relativity? It's it's the one with the staircases. Oh, the okay. people are going in the same direction, but in one world you're going upstairs, in the other world you're going downstairs. And then there's a perpendicular to those two, which is another world, so there are three worlds in one. And But that was a beautiful piece of work. And and he gave it to me at the end of the year. Nice. And, and I really liked it, so when I went to school, when I started teaching in... in um, North Carolina in Raleigh, I took it along with me and used it as a demonstration in the class. And the first summer that I left, I came back. Anyway, the guy, that, the gentleman that I had rented from, he took all the things that were in my apartment and put them in a in a garage. And it rained in the garage and ruined the model. Oh. It didn't seem to make any difference to him, but it, you know, to this day, I'm kind of angry at him because it was such a beautiful piece of work. You do seem to have a history of things getting water damage on them that you like. But that's that's kind of that's kind of a little bit off the off the topic. I'm referring specifically to some film slides that I know got We're damaged. In the basement. Yes, know. yes. Okay. Um, so you you taught first in Wisconsin, then you went to California, and then you went to North Carolina. Now, Wisconsin and California, I mean, admittedly, are very different places. But there's a large amount of people from the Midwest who end up out on the West Coast. Not quite as many uh, who then make the trip all the way back over to the East Coast. So what was it like making that sort of transition? Well, in a real sense, I didn't find it was much different. I, I did have to adjust to the language a little bit and maybe some of the customs. I, you know, I thought I, I must have been incredibly innocent because when I first went there, I was 27, 26, 27 years old, something like that. And the students were saying, yes, sir, no, sir. And I thought they were being rude. <laughs> which was really strange. I thought, well, when they get to know me, they won't be rude to me like this. And then I soon, it didn't take me long to figure out that I was the one who just didn't understand <laughs> that in the South they said, yes, sir, no, sir. And then, of course, I had, it was difficult at times understanding the, the for me, the Southern accent. Most of the time I could get it. But there were a couple of cases that were, well, to me to this day, are kind of comical. I was in line to... Uh, to in line with the students, you know, waiting for lunch. And one young girl in front of me said, Mr. Hansen, are you all hippie? And I thought, what? What is she saying? And I asked her, I understood the all, although she was, most of the time in the South, they use that correctly. They use it meaning more than one, but she was using it just, just for me. And then I figured, oh, she's meaning, are you a hippie? My hair was a little long, so that's probably why she said that. Well, your hair was long, and you were wearing bell-bottoms and funky shirts, if I remember the pictures correctly. Well, not, not always. Sometimes I would, but not all the time. And then uh, then she started talking about another student, and I said, oh, yes, he's in my class. And then she said, uh, is he mage? And I thought, what, mage? I didn't know what that meant either. <laughs> and, of course, she was asking, is he my age? You know? <laughs> And, and then one time a teacher on the faculty invited me over for dinner. And I said, oh, that's a good idea. What are we going to have? And she said, shrimp. 
I said, shrimp? What's that? And she said, well, I thought everyone knew what shrimp was. I said, I never heard of it. What is it? She said, well, they're little crustaceans that, you know, swim around in the water, in the ocean. And I said, well, I majored in zoology, and I never, I never heard of shrimp. And then, like, a light goes on, and I realize, I realize what's happening. But that's just, but I got to be pretty good at that. You know, I got to be pretty good at, uh, at, at understanding. But it was just like a, a new language. But well, it's it's not not just the not just the language though. I mean, because you were coming from California, California, you were coming from California, Northern California in the '60s. Yes. And so there was, I mean, I, I, admittedly, I wasn't anywhere near alive at that point. But from the amount of history I know, the specifically race relations between Northern California in the 60s and North Carolina in the 60s were radically different. I, I would have to imagine that, I mean, the interactions between the races at that time, because you were, were you in North Carolina around the time that they were starting to de- desegregate? Or? Well, Raleigh um, integrated their schools the, uh, I think the second year I was there. And, um, but I don't think the area where I lived, I don't think it was um, that they were that radical. And, and it wasn't difficult for the school at that time to integrate. There were a few problems, but it wasn't, it wasn't too bad. One of the difficulties, of course, was that they really didn't bus very many white students. They closed the all-black high school and only bust the black students. So they came to the school with a chip on their shoulder, which, which made sense. They were angry about that. But uh, the school was, the school handled it very, very well. They had uh, two class presidents. One was black, one was white. They doubled everything like that. And so it worked out pretty well. There were a few problems, but it, it really wasn't very major at all. Oh, okay. And, but, and nobody was upset about the doubling? Is, I, I mean, no. No. It, that just seemed something that would upset the only, people. The only thing I remember is that that really, really bugged me about it is that, well, and I suppose I can talk about him because he's dead now. Well, but, you can just mention a first name. You don't have to give the full well, name. Well, he was the, the principal of the school. And he um, he wanted to have a meeting of all the teachers early some morning. I don't know if it was what day of the week it was, but it was a school day, and he wanted to have a meeting early, because there was some concern over the way black, the black men were handling the, the, uh, the white girls in the school. And so we had the meeting, and when we got into the meeting, what had happened is, there was, I don't know if there was more than one, but there was only one instance that was told to us, and that was that some some white girl was walking up the stairs, and a black guy had slapped her on the butt. And uh, you know what we were going to do about that sort of thing. And what entered my head right away is, there probably were some girls climbing the stairs who were slapped in the butt by white guys too. I just thought it was kind of, kind of absurd. And back at that time, it would have been very difficult for blacks to say very much in the school. But after we talked for a while, Mr. Hanson, your father, raised his hand and said. I didn't think that there should be too many girls that get slapped on the behind if they don't want to. You know, and, and I, think, I think that this was just, just a silly waste of time. And if there's a particular problem, then as a principal, you should handle that. And why should we come into this meeting? 
And so that ended the meeting. And it took a while for some people in the faculty to uh, to understand me after that, although after a while I think things were all right. But there was an instant polarization where some people just really were angry with me for saying this to the principal. But I think it was a good thing. I think they needed to hear it. And uh, I think in the long run it sort of, um, it, it, I think it worked out. There you go, you know, not helping out the feminists much with your statement there. <laughs> no, I know that. And I mean, I've thought of that since. And, and, you know, and that certainly wasn't the intent. The intent was to just say that this is kind of, this is kind of silly that you need to handle the particular they, instances. They you're taking the, taking the specific context of it being a black student instead of a, right. it just being a male harassing a female, which is yeah. what it was. Well, I think that's what it was. I don't, I don't know what the particular instance was. You know, I mean, maybe... Well, I doubt it was know. racially charged. Those things usually well, aren't. I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I, I was recently, you know, in high school a few few years ago. Plenty of occasions of guys slapping girls on the behind. Yeah. I don't think that they were racially charged so much as gender charged. It's just silly high school behavior. But, so we talked about some serious topics... <laughs> Uh, but uh, now I know specifically an occasion with a substitute teacher, but I'm sure that there's other occasions that were not language charged. That you had uh, some funny stories uh, from classrooms. We like funny stories on the podcast. So, well, I don't know if it's a funny story, but it seems to me that you think this is funny. The the the, the substitute teacher story is hilarious. Okay. Well, I was a substitute teaching in North Carolina, and I used to. Um, well, see, 1969 was the first Earth Day, and when it occurred, being that uh, uh, Senator uh, Nelson from Wisconsin is the one who really started this, and I'm teaching in North Carolina, so anytime I got to, uh, you know, trumpet the virtues of Wisconsin, I would do so. And um, so I just said that, you know, Earth Day, and, and that there were too many students who drove cars to school, and they shouldn't be doing so, and... And they said, oh, handsome, you fraud, you're driving a Plymouth Barracuda 383 to school. You know, what are you talking about? That's true. You were driving a fantastic car back then. Well, Much know. nicer than your... Uh... Than what I drive now. But, um, so I thought, well, I, I, they're right. So I went and bought a five-speed Schwinn. And, uh, and I never drove... I shouldn't say I never. I may have for the remaining three years that I was at that school drove my car to school, but it wasn't many more than 10 days at the most. The rest of the time, even though it was snowing, and it didn't snow that much in North Carolina, I would I would pedal my bicycle to school, but I would take it up into the classroom. At first, I parked the bicycle and had the five-speed. I parked it right in the middle of my parking space out in the, uh, in the teacher's parking lot, and, but, and I never worried about it because it was, you know, not that great of a bicycle. But then someone told me about what, how nice it was to ride a good bicycle. So then I went and bought a, uh, a Raleigh International, and I loved that bicycle. And so that, that I would take up into my classroom. And then there was another student who bought a good bicycle, and he asked if he could bring it up in the classroom. I said, sure. So we'd always have two bikes in the classroom. Well, the one day I had a substitute teacher. Um, this kid came into the room with a bicycle, and that teacher was really upset that he was bringing a bicycle in the room. She didn't think he should be able to do it, but he assured her that <clears throat> that I said it was all right, and she was pretty angry about it. And she must have had a very rough day. I don't really know. 
all I know is when I got back to school, there was a note on my uh, on my desk of how what an awful day she had. And I was kind of surprised because I really had some good kids. And the one class that I particularly liked was my calculus class. They were really good students, and they were a lot of fun. And uh, she wrote in there about how awful these kids were and what they, you know, one thing after another. Then later that day, I got called down into the, um, uh, down into the, uh, um, uh, the vice principal's office. He wanted to talk to me, as well as as well as the um, uh, one of the counselors, and they wanted to know, you know, why my students were so awful to the substitute teacher. And I said, well, I can't explain that because they're really good kids, and I just can't believe it at all. Well, when I got to talking to the kids as the day went along, especially in the calculus class, they told me some of the things she did I can't even remember. But I thought to myself, good for you. <laughs> I was really proud that they stood up to her and said, you know, I, you know, and I wasn't trying to create any sort of problem, but I thought, you know, she was just kind of outrageous. She was so angry about that bicycle coming in the room <laughs> that she was out to get those kids, you know, for this horrible teacher that was in the room. So I, I ended up with a completely different point of view. Than the, than the other ones had, and I just, you know. I, I just, I just really like the idea of a substitute teacher coming in, in the class that you like, you know, I mean, your calculus class, calculus class, I mean, that's usually seniors. Yes. I, I mean, so the more mature senior, and also academically advanced seniors, are the ones that she just couldn't deal with anymore. Didn't she say that she would never substitute? Oh, yes. She said, under no circumstances would I ever substitute for you again. <laughs> Yes, yes, I remember that. I don't. I think I met her after that, but I can't really remember. I don't really remember. It was so long ago, but it just was kind of, kind of ridiculous. But the uh, the administration bought right into it, as well as the, you know, even though you know I had a, I think a decent record teaching there, but there were sometimes I suppose they were frustrated because I, you know. Would, Say things like you're you're a you're a hippie who rides a bike to school. Yeah, and I questioned their handling of the racial situation, and uh, um, and there were a couple other things that happened too. But but in the long run, they ended up you know when I left there, they I think they they kind of uh, they were kind of a little disappointed. Well, I, I know it, I've met some of your fellow teachers. They were definitely disappointed that you left. Well, what what had happened is the. Um, uh, my calculus class, the students were really very good students, and they took, they have some national tests or some statewide tests in, in North Carolina, and our class came in, I think it was first in the state, it was either first or second, I can't remember. Well, you had that one kid, right? Yes, yeah, he did, he came in, he came in second overall, but he went off to uh, Mark Wagman, he was a wonderful, wonderful student, and he went, he he just went to school there three years, and he went off to uh, school at Chapel Hill and and completed. Uh, he completed his work very quickly. He was just a brilliant kid. But anyway, the um, uh, I got credit for uh, for being such a good teacher <laughs> that my students were, you know, like number one in the state, and that that really wasn't true. You know, the the thing was that those students were such good students. They came in there with that mathematical ability, and then, of course, we, we helped them along, but they, they really did very well. You, you can take some credit for it. I mean, you did help, you did once help save Joe DiMaggio's life. Oh, Sam. <laughs> Sam. 
<laughs> oh, come on. The the man in, what, the New York, some New York newspaper, was it the Post? I think it was the Post, would say, like, who was the teacher who had most influence on you? The guy who <sighs> did Joe DiMaggio's no, part no, surgery. It was in the Raleigh News and Oh, it was in the Raleigh News and Observer. Um, but and he, he did Joe DiMaggio's heart surgery. He listed you as his most influential uh, teacher. And he wasn't Joe DiMaggio. It was... Um, oh, Mickey Mantle? Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle. Yes. Sorry. Some Yankee player. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what had happened is um, a student from North Carolina became a, um, uh, a surgeon. You know, and probably, you know, cardiovascular surgeon somewhere in Texas. I can't even remember where. And uh, he was the one who did the heart transplant for uh, Mickey Mantle. And so the local newspaper interviewed him because he'd graduated from the school where I, where I taught. And um, uh, they asked him about his teachers, and he said that I had been his favorite teacher in high school. And I'm not certain, I'm not certain that he was actually a student of mine. <laughs> I don't think he was, but I remember him very well because we used to ride bicycle together, and his brother was was uh, a student of mine, and 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 I was close with the family. They were just really good people, and and I had given him I had a collection of old blues albums with, uh, you know, Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and all those people, and I had given him a bunch of those to listen to, and apparently he recorded them and was still listening to to them this to this day, so. Um, you know that's that's what the story is, but I didn't say you it. saved Mickey Mantle. Yeah, <laughs> my five minutes of fame is because I once had a student who I'm not even sure was my student. Well, who, there's who operated on Mickey Mantle. Uh, there's a there's a reason why someone who was not necessarily in your class could have still listed you as your favorite teacher because you did something back then that you probably wouldn't be able to do this day, which was. Uh, interact with your students outside or interact with the students of the high school outside of the classroom okay now i know exactly what you're talking about and so and it was a surprise to me because you're the one who called you know called my attention to this when i first started teaching i used to take students often on weekends camping when i taught in california i took students as long as a week to death valley to uh, um, um, yosemite uh, and we had a wonderful time and then later on, I was thinking, you know, I never ever took girls along. That was really kind of thoughtless of me. I thought, well, maybe that wouldn't work. Well, we could have brought along another teacher, another woman, and we could have. We did it a lot. And as a matter of fact, even in my credentials uh, that, that were sent out, some of the uh, people who, who recommended me as a teacher said that this was one of the good things that I did. You know, I, I did a lot of stuff with students. Well, I said that to my son one time, and he said to me, Faf, you couldn't do that today. And I remember looking at him, well, why not? And now, now, in order for people to understand this, is I stopped teaching for a while, so there was a period of time that I didn't teach, and when I went back, I started, went back substituting, so I, I, you know, bypassed, you know, a fair amount of time not in the classroom. And they said, well, because now they think you were a pervert. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> he probably is right. So, so it's very interesting that one of the things that was on my credentials recommending me as a teacher is that I did these things. But if you did them today, now people would think that they yeah, were something Yeah, and I, I think that's a sad thing because it sound, it's always sounded like you had a huge amount of fun on those trips we with did. your students. We did. And to this day, I mean, I, I don't have a lot of contact with those 
students, but to this day they will talk about those trips and how much they loved them and what we did and what a good time we had, and it, it was fun. So more recently, jumping ahead, you've been doing a decent amount of substitute teaching at my old high school, and I know that I know that you've professed to enjoy it, and I know that my fellow students also profess to enjoy it. So what is it about substitute teaching that's so nice to you these days? Well, when I decided to go back and just do some substitute teaching, I really didn't have any idea because when I taught before, I didn't have very many problems with student behavior and, you know, a little bit, but not much. Wow, when I started teaching, I was really just blown away by the you know, the attitude of the <laughs> students and then, but, but rather than it making me want to just leave, which would have been easy to do, it made me want to stay, it made me want to stay and try and straighten the wow. problems out. I, I do remember a couple times in, in a couple classes that I was in, mm -hmm. just complete and utter chaos at times, specifically that the trigonometry class I was in that you taught where you lit into students, you just, it was Luke Herman, yes. you just, well, why screamed at him. Oh, because nobody knows who he is. Okay. Well, he was a very good student, and I, and, I, and I thought that the teachers liked him, but it was like he was saying, why were we doing what we were doing? And, and I was just saying, that you can continue doing your work, but what makes you think that you're going to... Well, we were you know? so used to having substitute teachers not do anything, especially in those higher-level classes, okay. and especially in math classes, because we tended to not get substitute teachers who had any real teaching credentials whatsoever. They tended to be people who came in and sat us down, told us to sit down, be quiet, and just let us be. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it, I know that a lot of students have enjoyed it, and I enjoyed having a substitute mm -hmm. teacher because we would do things. But there were there were those that were not too happy about that. Well, I had done a little bit of substitute teaching years and years ago in Kenosha and in Green Bay, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in Green Bay, Wisconsin, also in Raleigh, North Carolina. So I kind of developed a technique that worked very well for me, and that was to go into the classroom prepared with something to do that would be of interest and had some value. And, and it, would, it would work so much better than trying to continue on from where the teacher was, because one day you'd be substituting for math, another time for history, another time for, you know, just about anything. But by preparing these things and going to the classroom, I could do something that was worthwhile and it would, and the students would like it and I would enjoy it. It would make it so much more interesting. And that's what I continue to do to this day and that's why I like it so much. If there's something on television that is of, of worthwhile, you know, that, that might be interesting, I'll take that along. Or if I find something new in mathematics that might, you know, might work with students, you know, I could take that. For example, the, um, uh, the Euclidean proof of, uh, you know, which some people believe is the most elegant proof in all of mathematics that shows that there are numbers besides rational numbers. Oh, that is that is a absolutely wonderful proof. Actually, I think that that's a topic that we'll probably delve into at some point, even though I detest Euclid. Well, you can take this particular proof to, I think, kids as early as seventh grade. And well, I think you could take them even earlier. Well, I don't know, but maybe. But you can actually, if you're very careful, you can show them that, look, you know, look, look, look what's going on here. And then they understand it, and then you can say to them, and it just works beautifully, is, look what you've just done. You know, this is, this is very elegant, sophisticated, beautiful mathematics. And, uh, and you've done that as, as a relatively young student. Good for you. 
and then sometimes I've got something that I like to do on the, on the Socrates, the death of Socrates, and what a magnificent story that is. That works all the time in classes. I do it over and over again. We mentioned before the problem of the printed line. Recently, I found something. Oh, I'm not going to remember these mathematicians' names, so I'm not going to bring it up. Oh, no, bring it up. I might know them. Uh, anyway, they're, 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 they've done a, uh, a series of college lectures for the teaching company, and, uh, and I bought their book. And in their book, there's this problem about... Um, uh, can you take a deck of cards and slide them in such a way that one card will actually be over the edge? Of, you put the deck at the edge of the table and you slide them, and then they will actually. How many? Can you actually slide them so that one card would actually be over the edge of the table? And the answer is yes. And then you say to the students, well, how many cards can you do that with? And then you give them a bunch of cards and you have them see if they can at the edge of their desk bounce. Well, it can be done with four cards, which is really kind of cool. And they say, well, how many will you need in order to do two cards? And I don't remember the exact number. I'd have to look it up. But it takes quite a few more. What can you do with three cards? Well, better yet, could you actually, you know, if you had enough cards, could you do it so that you'd, be, you'd have two feet of cards off the edge of the table? And the answer <laughs> is yes. Then you say, well, could you do it a mile long? Well, that seems to be a little outrageous if you had enough cards. Well, it turns out the answer is yes to that, too. And they say, well, a mile yeah, long. Of course. A mile long, and then you sit at the end, on the end of the last card and, and, and not knock the pile down. Could that happen? And the answer, of course, to that is yes, too. Well, it's another one of those things. Well, this turns out to be, you know, a greater number of cards than there are atoms in the well, universe. Yeah, but it's still doable. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it makes a lot of assumptions that, that you know, the gravitational pull would, you know, would be... You know, it, it, well, it's, it's an idealized world. It's right. the physics right. idealized world. Right. But it's still a neat problem. Yeah. Kids love that. So it's, it's, it's really fun. But when you substitute in a small school like Niagara, then you're not only going to be subbing in, in high school for all of the different subjects, so that I, I can go into a uh, French class and teach something in mathematics, or, or I, I recently have been, been, um, been trying to learn Spanish. I didn't start studying Spanish till I was 60. thought I should learn some Spanish. And I learned a couple Spanish songs. I teach this to kindergartners, and they'll, they'll love it. And then four or five years later, they'll remember it. So it's really, I enjoy, I enjoy substitute teaching as in, 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 in the public schools now. Although sometimes it's kind, of, it's kind of fascinating. For example, I had a kindergarten class a few years ago. I think it's three years ago now. And I had them for three days in a row. And the kindergarten teacher is just a fantastic teacher. Well, you had her, Betsy Shelton. I, d I never had Betsy as a teacher. Oh, no, you had uh, Catherine Vivio. Yes. But you, uh, but you uh, always liked Betsy Shelton. Oh, yeah. I, I always have. I always go back and visit her. I know you do. Well, anyway, she's an excellent kindergarten teacher and does a fantastic job. And, and I was subbing for her for three days, and the kids were pretty good. And the end of the third day, it's a lot, a lot of work working with young kids like that. I don't know how these grade school teachers do it. But at the end of the third day, the last hour of the last day, the bell rang and everyone left except for this one little girl and she waited till they were all gone. And then she came up to me and she said, you know, Mr. Hansen, you are not a very good teacher. You let the students do whatever they want and now look at the mess. <laughs> and she turned around and walked. <laughs> I thought, oh, wow, what a great way to end the day. <laughs> well, it turned out the next day, this doesn't have anything to do with teaching, but it was like the next day, 
I had to go to my hometown. Someone was there, and we went up to the uh, nursing home to see a lady who whom I had known when I was uh, in high school, and she was now in the nursing home, and her daughter was there, and we had a nice conversation. And then her daughter said, did you know Mrs. Brightsman is out, out in the cafeteria there? And I said, oh, no, I'd like to see her. And uh, so I went and said hello to Mrs. Brightsman. Do you remember me? And she said, oh, yes, you're Danny. I remember you. And we had a nice conversation. And then Bonnie, this lady's daughter, came up and said, Mrs. Bradsman, did you tell Danny how old you are? And she said, no. And she said, well, I'm, I'm, and Bonnie said, you're 95 years old. And she said, yes, I'm 95. And then she looked me right in the eye and she said, you know, Danny, you have to be a pretty good person in order to live to be 95. You will never make it. <laughs> so in two days, I'd been insulted by a kindergartner. <laughs> And then by someone, 94, 95, whatever her age was, I just really thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, there's there's something that you mentioned that I'd like to go back, because I, I do hope that there are some, uh, some teachers of mathematics or some people who are currently teaching mathematics, be it in elementary school, high school, or the college level. And something that you mentioned, which is having them actually physically do these things. Now, I've actually mentioned you having people physically do things before in a previous episode of this podcast when we were talking about the four-color theorem and actually have telling students this theorem be like, prove it wrong. And you can't, obviously, because mm -hmm. it's true that you can use four colors. Now, have you found, I mean, throughout teaching, I know that you do it now as a substitute, but when you were a, a full-time teacher as well, did you find that having them do actual things with their hands instead of just the work on paper to be an effective method of teaching. Well, it is. And the four-color map is an example, although they're using paper there too. But but uh, they some students refuse, refuse absolutely to believe that four colors will color every map. Yeah. And they will continue to work and work and work on it and then bring it into you. And then, and then you're forced to, you know, and it'll be pretty complicated. You have to figure out what to do. Uh, you know, after I've done it for so long, it's a lot easier to, to work it out now and say, oh, no, but look, you did such and such. You know, you could color it this way. But there are a lot of things, you know. One of the, there are just a lot of things. And, and I don't know how to say it. Uh, um, palindromes, for example. You know, uh, words that are the same forward and backwards. Yes, yes. You know, you can go up to the board and write the word mom, dad, give me another word that fits in here, and then another word, another word, and then they'll give it, but don't, don't let the students tell you what the pattern is, they can just give you the words, and then, you know, one light, one light's up here, another light goes on over there, and pretty soon about half the class knows what's going on, and then you have someone tell them what's going on, and then you either talk about palindromes, but one of the neat things that you can do with palindromes is also in numbers. For example, you can say to the students, give me a two-digit number. Most of the time, they will give you the right ones because they can give you one that can mess this up. And then you just kind of wait, find a way to sort of slip to the side and say, oh, didn't you have a number before this to something else? <laughs> so like say, say they give you the number 27. You say, all right, let's take 27 and reverse it and write 72 and then add the two together and you get 99. And you say, well, no, is that like those words we wrote before? Oh, yeah, it is. It's the same thing forward and backwards. So this is a palindromic number. You know, palindromic spelled backwards is semordinolap, so it's, yeah. not, it's not a palindrome. <laughs> but anyway, then you ask someone for another number, they might give you uh, 
34, and then you write 43 at 77, and and usually you can end up with four or five, and they just go, wow, that's unbelievable. And I say, well, do you think it happens all the time? Oh, yes, they'll say. Most <laughs> of the time they'll say, oh, yes. But then someone will come up with a number like, let's say, 67. And reverse that, and you get 70, excuse me, get 76. And when you add those together, you get 143. Did I do that right, 143? I believe okay. so, yes. Then you reverse that to 341, and then you will get 484. So then you'll say, ah, this one became palindromic, but it took two steps. So it looks like some are one-step palindromes, some are two-step palindromes. Can anyone find a three-step palindrome? And kids will jump right into that. And they want to be the first one to find a three-step palindrome. And uh, But then sometimes they'll pick something, it turns out that it's more than three steps. And so, no, no, I only want a three-step palindrome and then a four-step palindrome, and a five-step palindrome, and then you ask the question, well, it looks like all numbers eventually become palindromic. Now, I don't know where the mathematics is on this now, but at one time, they knew there were some numbers that they've run through computers, you know, many, 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 many steps, and they were never able to get them to become palindromic, and they thought they never will become palindromic. But no one, as far as I know, has been able to prove that that's the case. So, and this is integers only? Integers only, okay. right? Yeah, because yeah, because otherwise it would. You, you, know, you take pi, no, and then it's impossible to no, do. No, so no. they have to be integers only and uh, um, positive. You have positive integers right. only, right? Right. Okay. And it's and it's a great thing. And when I'm substitute teaching, I mean, there's just many many ideas, and then and then it isn't long before students have a tendency to kind of they're kind of happy that you're coming, because you know they know that you're going to be doing something that hopefully is worthwhile, that they will find interesting, and is completed within an hour, and um, um, isn't necessarily the thing that, that they're doing in the classroom. Now, I think that kind of substitute teaching is worthwhile. Now, if it's a long-term substitute, then of course you've got to take over and follow the curriculum. Yes. But, but for what I do, this, this works out perfectly. And the teachers at, at Niagara High School are they just expect me to do that now, so they don't even write up a lesson plan. Did you, know. you have you ever gotten in trouble for going off lesson plan? I think when I substituted in Green Bay, there were some teachers who didn't like it. And then I remember one time too, I was substituting for a math class in uh, in Green Bay, and for one class, the uh, the instructions were. Developed the binomial expansion theorem. Oh, I love doing that. And I thought, wow, you're just showing off when you say that. Because you really can't expect most substitute teachers to come in and do that. Oh, and yes, you can. That's such an easy thing to do. Well, for most substitute teachers, they can't. But I knew how to do it, so it was really kind of fun. And, you know, then I kind of indicated, you know, some way about, you know, that was... Uh, did, the, did the students actually go along with it? Because I actually proved that in... What in my in the class that I teach now at the university level, and people were upset with me for doing it because they thought it was too complicated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the students in that class, I think, understood. I think so long ago, I can't really remember, but it was just kind of fun to do because, I, I mean, I just thought the teacher really can't be serious about this, but but we did it anyway. <laughs> 
Okay, well, uh, from stories of inciting uh, race riots in North Carolina to substitute teaching in uh, Nice to Date, Wisconsin, that was my conversation with my father. So please email me with any ideas, topic suggestions, thoughts on this show at combinationsandpermutations at gmail.com. And please visit the blog on the website, combinationsandpermutations.blogspot.com, where I'll put up links about the topics that were discussed today, as well as the names of those two mathematicians who had that thing that we couldn't quite remember the names of. Thank you very much, and I hope you had a good time listening. Well, that's it for another episode of Combinations and Permutations. If you want to get a hold of us, please email us at combinationsandpermutations at gmail.com. Also, check out our blog at combinationsandpermutations.blogspot.com. This episode has been licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Share-Alike license. All the music that you've heard on this podcast is from SP12. If you like what you hear, go check them out at opsound.org. Thank you for listening.